to the Making Laps Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Making Laps Podcast. My name is Brent Gleason. I am from Griswold, Connecticut. The reason I'm doing this podcast is because for this region, I don't feel like there is really another podcast out there that goes into a lot of in-depth or technical or meaningful debate about racing at large. So I decided that with a little bit of spare time that I had laying around, maybe I could start my own. Instead of complaining about what's out there, why not make something that I would want to hear? So... What to expect from this show is you're going to hear a lot about the local racing scene, southern New England, New England in general, but I do plan to branch out to do national news and even some international news if I find it pertinent to talk about or interesting. I hope at some point to get a co-host or guests or any anybody in to speak at a roundtable discussion at some point because hearing me talk all alone is kind of boring and it's actually incredibly difficult to make a podcast by yourself. So a little bit of background about me. I first got into racing in about 1999, so I've been doing it for about 20 years. I've been a fan my entire life, but I got into racing when my brother and my dad bought a car and decided to go racing at the Speed Bowl in what was known as the street stock division back in 1999, but now would be called something like, I think they call it the sportsman division, or it changed names a couple times between then and now, but at either rate, we raced there for a few years, and after a while, we decided to take our equipment up to Thompson and give that a shot in 2003, no, 2002. And so we went to Thompson then, and we never really looked back. Uh, In 2003, I decided to try to make my driving debut instead of being a crew member, and I bought what would be considered nothing more than really a glorified enduro car, and I started racing in the, and that's not a knock against the division that I used to race in. Matter of fact, I don't think I'm even going to mention it so I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but uh, I raced, I think, a handful of races in that car. I wrecked it pretty badly once, and uh, I was in college at the time, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to allocate my time or my resources to this, I'm just going to finish out school, and maybe after that, and when I get a better job, maybe I'll come back to racing. So I graduated college in about 2007, I came back to racing in 2008, I'd bought a mini stock from a friend of mine, and I caught the last few races up at Thompson Speedway with that. And I ran that car with very limited success, I'll be fair. I think the best finish I ever got with it was a second. I only got a handful of top fives, maybe two or three. Um, Not a lot of success. Uh, We were very underfunded, very under, um, well, under intelligence, I guess. Uh, Very low knowledge of the car. So I said, you know what? Maybe it would be a better idea if I moved up to a division where we do have the intelligence, but 
I didn't really take that offer up until about 2013 when I finally had enough of the mini stock. It had finally given me enough problems where I said, you know what, that's enough. I'm done paying for this thing because it kept breaking on me and it kept uh, just chintzy little, you know, $5 parts would go wrong and completely ruin a race or I'd blow an engine up almost every eight races. I said, you know what, I've had it. So I sold the car off in 2013. I built a sportsman to race at Thompson with, and I debuted it at the 2013 World Series. In that same race, my brother destroyed his primary car, and I was feeling bad about it. And I said, okay, well, we'll figure out a way for you to get back into racing. We'll get you another car. We'll do something. That off-season, I had purchased a home, and the first thing to move into it was probably that race car. I put it right in the garage. Later in that off-season, come the following year, I had found out my wife was pregnant. So I sold that car to my father and brother, and they went racing with it while I was out of racing. In 2015, my life had changed for the better. My father gave me a chassis and a few spare parts and said, here you go, kid. If you can get it going, you can race it. And I was all for it. And I haven't stopped since. And uh, we've won multiple feature races. Uh, we finished on the podium in points three years in a row. We led the division in wins one season. We've had a lot of success. This past season has probably been my last season in competition for at least a year, maybe a couple years, as I try to do a little bit more to fix my financial situation. Uh, and let's be honest, the honeydew list around the house and the renovations and stuff that I really want to do around my home is kind of a little bit too big for me to continue racing at this point. So I said, you know what? We'll take it. We'll stick it on a shelf. We'll come back to it later. So as I got bored, I thought to myself, hey, why not do something to occupy your time? Why not talk about racing? Why not start a podcast? Why not get something that maybe some people would be interested in listening to? Maybe they could fill their time and maybe get involved in the debate a little bit. Speaking of which, if you'd like to get involved in the debate, we don't have a, well, we don't have a page for the podcast yet. Like we don't have social media. We don't have a web page I do have a web page for my race team, which is Gleason Bros, G-L-E-A-S-O-N-B-R-O-S, racing.com. People ask me, why bros? It's like, well, because it's short for brothers, and that's what started our team, is the Gleason Brothers, my dad and his brother, and my brother and me. So, anyway, um, maybe I'll put some stuff up on the website there, maybe I won't, but we don't have any social media stuff yet, because this is the first episode we don't have anything set up yet. So if you want to get involved in the debate, if you want to come on and chat with me, if you have Skype, whatever, um, I'm, I'm really not against having anybody come and chit chat. I love hearing opinions. I love talking racing. So if you want to hit me up at BrentGleason01 on Instagram and Twitter, I'm always available. DM me, hit up a show post, hit up anything. Just let me know. But anyway, this show is going to be divided up into segments, and I'm going to call them laps. And I'm going to have topics on each lap. That's not a that's not set in stone. We might have some other more in-depth discussions, but I'm sure that they'll probably take place in the same type of format. But anyway, uh, with all the formalities aside, uh, why don't we get on into lap number one? 
Lap number one is going to consist of something that a lot of people around asphalt short track racing, which is what this show is probably going to be based around. We will obviously touch on dirt and other stuff as we see fit. But anybody who's been around asphalt short track racing has seen the five-star bodies, uh, next generation late model body. Now, if you haven't seen this thing, go and check it out. It is amazing. It looks like, and there's no other real nice way to put it, but it looks like sex on wheels. It is a masterpiece of body design. I, I, I haven't seen anything that um, good looking in the short track world in a very long time. So I, I give them all the kudos in the world. I just know that they've run into a lot of problems with the ABC committee and trying to get the body uh, approved for use with late model competition. I know that also a lot of people and a lot of sanctioning bodies have been going around the ABC committee and saying, you know what, this thing looks way too good. We are tired of using the same body for the last decade or decade plus. So we are going to approve this body for use for our competitors. It's, it's actually quite cost effective. It's pretty intelligently designed. And again, it looks fantastic. So like I said, I, I know that the ABC committee means well, but to be honest, I think we can probably do away with it. That's another discussion for a different time. But if you've seen this body, you know what I'm talking about. This past week at the PRI show, the performance racing industry show, the other large, well, there's, there's other body makers out there, but there's only two that I really think of. There's five star and there's AR bodies. Now, AR bodies had come out with their answer to this. I don't know what people are calling it. The new late model body, the gen six, the gen seven. I have no idea what they're actually calling it, but on either rate, AR bodies had finally come out with their answer to this body. And I saw it, and as much as I really wanted to like it, I really don't like it. I think it's it's a good effort. You can tell what they were trying to do. They were trying to... up. Essentially, it looked like they were trying to update the ABC body with a new nose and maybe a new greenhouse. I'm not even sure. It just kind of looked like they took an ABC body and kind of stretched a new nose and tail on it. I don't know. It looked acceptable, but it definitely wasn't up to par with what Five Star was doing. And I'm trying, I'm really trying not to knock anybody. I'm just saying that this is a good effort, but honestly, I think that they focused on some things that really aren't going to matter for racers. Um, I'd heard a rumor that they had tried to make it so that you could take an ABC body and just kind of update it. But if you're going to do one thing, you might as well do everything. Because when it comes to bodies, guys want to make the race car look good. They can want to use it for sponsors. They want to be able to attract uh, fans to their cars, business to their cars, sponsors, etc. Attention at large. And... Like I said, you slap enough decals on anything, it's going to look pretty good. But I think they just kind of missed with this one. So I'd, I'd love to hear anybody else's uh, opinion of it uh, if you want. Actually, I should just let this out there right now. I don't have a page for the podcast yet. Again, this is a pilot episode. This is not 
uh, set up or, or ready to go in any way. But if you want to send me questions, my Twitter and Instagram is BrentGleason01. And you can DM me or you can hit me up on there and just do personal stuff. I don't care. I'm not going to reach a lot of followers with this anyway. So <laughs> if you want to discuss it, feel free to send me that on any topic, and I will come back to it. Um, anyway, uh, that's my opinion on that. Uh, you know what? While we're on the subject of bodies, uh, I know that a lot of people have been talking about, hey, why don't we update a street stock body, or why don't we update you know, a mini stock body, or any of this stuff? And it's like, well, to be honest with you, do they really need to be updated? Like, do I need to be running a late model style Camaro body or a, a, a Mustang body or whatever on my street stock. I mean, I don't have to, you know, it's not enough. It's something that's just not really necessary in my eyes. And it looks like it's just something that really every single part of it is available in the aftermarket. So why would I want it? the cost is just not necessary. You know, if I have a, a Monte Carlo, like a G chassis car, why do I need to put a new body on it? Like, why do I have to put a new Camaro body on it, spend $3,000 to swap body over? People will say, oh, well, because there's no stock body, this panel's left, it's really hard to get buttons. No, it's not. It's it's. They still make stock-style body panels for it. We don't need to expand the market. We don't need to add expense. So just, just drop that. I mean, it's a really cool idea for some people, and maybe you could allow it on certain levels. But for me... Personally, I don't really think that is really necessary to, to start touching the lower divisions. And that's another discussion we'll get into about cost later on in the recording. Uh, not today, but later on, that's going to be another discussion. So if you've got something to say, again, hit me up on Instagram or, or Twitter, DM me. So anyway, we're going to get on to lap number two. Lap number two is going to be something a little bit close to home. It's not going to be so much on the national level, but it is. Well, it'll be a lot more centered around, let's say, the Connecticut racing scene, and maybe even some of the reactions of the fans, the racers, and staff at large. I've seen a lot of nonsense on the internet which is essentially what the internet is. The internet is nothing more than just nonsense. Um, but people have been very hypercritical of, let's just say it, they've been hypercritical of Thompson Speedway Motorsports Park for not releasing a schedule as of, well, today. Today is approximately December 16th, 2019, and there's no schedule yet. So people have been very busy going about spreading as many rumors as possible, saying that the track is not going to run oval track races and that they're not interested in it and that they are going to cut the schedule even further and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. Listen, until the day comes where the track actually announces it, then don't say it. The only reason people are going about saying negative things like this, or even saying negative things on the internet in general, most of the time, is the fact that they want the attention for being the first person who's going to be right. And who does that really benefit? Does negativity really benefit anybody? 
Would you feel better if you were correct that, in fact, the track was going to close down the oval track program and that they were going to just tell, you know, tell racers not to come back? Would you feel better? If the answer is no, then why would you go about spreading negativity or spreading rumors or nonsense? I don't really understand the logic behind it. Perhaps back in the day when I was a younger man, uh, which let's be honest, I'm really not old to begin with. But anyway, maybe I was a different person and maybe I'd spoken some ways like this, but I learned not to spread negativity because it doesn't benefit anybody. So like I said, just because a schedule hasn't come out by mid-December doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. Other tracks might have their schedules out already for 2020, but again, everybody's different. There's no set time frame for them to have to put a schedule out. I've seen people say, oh, well, I wanted to, I wanted to buy season passes for Christmas for people, and well, I can't do it because they aren't offering them right now, and they're not ready yet, and they don't even have the schedule out, or the rules, or this or that. If you're buying season passes for people for Christmas, by all means, you can buy Christmas presents for me because I can't afford that. But kudos to you for actually coming up with that kind of gift. Holy crap. But again, negativity, it does nothing. It's just self-serving and all you want to be is right. You don't want to be right about negativity. You don't. Racing is having a hard enough time surviving as it is. My mother said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And that's something I take to take to heart. So let's just knock it off, okay? Connecticut racing at large is really kind of going through a rough patch to begin with anyway. Um, this past season, the Waterford Speed Bowl did not open. Uh, I know there's probably a lot more going on behind the scenes, but yet again... We're dealing with nothing more than just negativity from people and conjecture and rumor and whatever else you could possibly come up with. And it does nothing to benefit the community again, but people still do it. And I don't understand why. So there's been rumors that, oh, this person's not there anymore or that person's not there. And I know there's a group of people out on Facebook who do nothing but create rumors through fake identities and let's be honest, if you're, if you're doing that, you might, as well, you might as well just get off Facebook because you're probably a hell of a lot of fun at parties uh, <laughs> that you probably don't get invited to. But anyway, um, we had a shred of hope come through on that track. I think it was November 29th. Uh, they had posted a picture of work. Re be well beginning again, should I say, restarting. But they showed they shared a picture of an excavator working to level some ground and some people working. And I know that this time of year and when it gets into the fall and rainy season, it gets kind of difficult to do anything around here. So um, weather is not exactly on their side, but when you see pictures of people working, uh, it does give you a little bit of hope. But what my main concern is... Again, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to help. My main concern is that I want to see 
some kind of update, whether that update be nothing's happening or here's something that's going on. And I know that sounds kind of strange or convoluted, but if you don't have any sort of update, give a, like, I'm not critique, I'm not, like I said, I'm not bashing anybody or anything. I'm just saying, I'd like to see something. Even if you you share a picture saying, hey, you know, we didn't get anything done this week because this reason, a scheduling conflict with the construction team or a financial conflict with ownership or something. Either way, like if you just put something out there, you know, the fans are your people who are going to come in that front gate and they're going to give you money. They're going to come watch the races any little thing that you can do to keep them informed and keep your business in their minds at all time and keep them thinking of you is going to help you in the long run. Again, I'm not exactly what you would call a businessman and I'm not exactly a GM. I'm not in charge. I'm not. <laughs> There's a reason why I haven't been hired to do any of this work. But a little constructive criticism might go a long way. You know what I mean? Um, no news in this situation is not good news. But if you have somebody out there informing the public of, hey, you know, we just couldn't get to something this week because of X reason or because of the weather or because of a financial reason, the people say, okay, well, at least you guys are doing something. Just hearing from the racetrack is going to be enough to placate the masses for a good amount of time. I know it's a very difficult situation to be in, and I know Mike, the GM over at Waterford, he's working probably more than a lot of us do. I know he's got a day job, he's got a big family to take care of, and he is trying his best with what limited resources he really has to try to get this track back on a schedule and back to getting renovations completed. So I know that's a tough job. Um, I learned my lesson from all of the negative uh, feedback I used to give other track owners and operators. And I said, you know what, again, this is my theme for the show. Excessive negativity is not going to benefit anybody. So Constructive criticism, uh, constructive criticism definitely will help, you know. I mean, it could help, it could not help, but it's a lot better than being negative. So, again, I know these guys have a lot on their plate. I know that there's a lot left to do. I've heard that all the permits are now finally in order. I know that that was a very long and drawn-out process, and I know that dealing with government bureaucracies, be it local and state or national is a very difficult road to hoe and hopefully i am hopeful that this will come to fruition and that we will see a genuine update completed very soon if not at least before any sort of track operations could commence in 2020 when it comes to the speed bowl at large the Waterford Speed Bowl in Connecticut here, obviously. I know everybody who's listening is like, yes, we know. Thank you. This is a local show. We know what you're talking about. But I know 
that a lot of people are very unhappy with the ownership of the track and they're they're essentially it's you know I can't even describe it it's just a difficult situation to be in it's a difficult it's a difficult decision to try to make the man has been put in jail for let's be honest nothing short of of uh crimes against people uh, I don't even want to go into it because I don't know the exact definition of what he did I know a lot of people have stepped away from the track. They've boycotted the facility. They said, nope, we're not going to do anything until this guy sells the place. Well, he's not going to sell the place. I don't think there's any interest in selling the place. So it's a debate now of whether or not you want to know your enemy or do you want to not show up and just let the place die. I mean, how do you know? that the place won't get sold to somebody who won't want to run it as a racetrack. And it's it's a catch-22. Do you support a facility based on your own moral objections to what the ownership may have done or was convicted of doing? Or do you not support the racetrack and it goes away and all you have left is the nostalgia of what it used to be. Like I said, at what point does your moral objection override your better judgment? Would you rather see something you love dearly go away? Or would you rather support it just for the sheer fact of keeping it around? I feel like this man is serving time and he's going to serve his time as punishment for what he's done. I know you may not condone of his actions, which I don't think anybody would. But the fact remains that we will support the facility because of what we love about it, not what we love about him. You'll always have some kind of disagreement with ownership of a facility or management or whatever. But the fact remains is that when you walk onto those grounds, when nobody's around... Do you really think about who owns it, or do you think about what could be ahead or what memories you've made? Because when it's gone, it's never coming back. The world has changed, and racing is really in a tight spot. So, again, it's up to you. I'm not demanding of anybody to change their ideas or ideals or morals or whatever. But I just want people to think about it. I want them to think about what they're doing. Lap number three, I'm going to bring up not only a new chassis design that's coming for uh, modified competitors, but I'm also going to touch on the year-long, utterly ridiculous in my eyes, controversy of the LFR Fury chassis builder uh, feud, duel, what do you want to call it? But honestly, whatever it is, it was just kind of silly in my eyes. So anyway, Troyer, a few weeks, maybe a month or so ago, said that they, in an announcement, they said that they were bringing out a brand new chassis called the TA4. They merged with um, Fuller and LFR, and they have that new business, the TFR distribu uh, distribution, that is. I've noticed that 
these guys have been getting to work with all sorts of new software for engineering and design. Like I've, I've noticed a couple pictures of guys working with SolidWorks software to try to come up with different chassis designs and maybe take and scan a bunch of their old chassis and put it through this sort of software and design programming to try to maybe find out where the weak points are. And in my mind, uh, that's an incredibly good idea. I was actually an engineering student in college. Uh, the only the only reason I didn't graduate as an engineering student was because I could not do the math. And if you're going to have math with letters and numbers, I'm just kind of shut down at that point. But anyway, I know all about this software and, and these programming or um, these engineering tools and programs. So I'm excited to see what kind of results come out of these uh, efforts. I've noticed a few different changes to it that I could see based on pictures. I'm seeing different height adjustments up front and different uh, levels of bracing and stuff in the front end. I'm really, like I said, when, things, when these new chassis come out right at the end of the season, it's kind of hard to gauge how they're going to do. And you basically have to sit and wait in anticipation for the next season to come around in order for you to get any sort of real idea about what they're capable of. I'm sure that somebody at, at a high level of, let's say, um, modified tour racing, probably NASCAR modified tour teams, have put purchase orders in for this new chassis. And I, I am very anxious to see what preseason testing brings because I like I like engineering. I'm a, I'm a very big fan of it. My father was an engineer for the state of Connecticut for over 30 years, and it's through his uh, efforts and teachings that I became interested in it. And let's be honest, if you're a good engineer, you can you can do a lot of things that are pretty in pretty interesting with a race car and make it go, especially if you don't have much of a budget. So I'm very excited to see what Troyer has in store for that. As it pertains to this Fury slash LFR feud that I've been nothing short of inundated with online and Twitter and Facebook and forums and all this other nonsense, I think it's kind of silly. Each, you know, in my eyes, and I could be completely wrong, I could be very ignorant of the subject, but in my eyes, aren't both the cars essentially the same? I mean, didn't LFR kind of come out with a design and then eventually sell it off to Fury? And then basically Fury started building those cars? I mean, I'm sure they did some tweaks of their own, but like I said, didn't they all, didn't they both start with essentially the same slate? I mean, it, it just seems kind of silly to me for people to just run around and say, no, that's our car that won that race. No, that's our car that won that race. It's like, Jesus Christ, who cares? If somebody purchased the car from Fury, it's a Fury. If somebody purchased it from LFR when they were building the cars, then it's an LFR. It's just childish. Can we just knock it off, please? I'm just glad it's the off season, so I don't have to hear about it anymore. I'm sorry I even brought it up, but like I said, I'm very interested to see what kind of uh, results all these new chassis designs are going to have. On a different topic, getting into Fender cars, I'd heard that Fury was coming out with some sort of uh, perimeter chassis late model that would be legal for use with ACT competition, but I haven't seen anything about it. Uh, I know that I'd read something, but I hadn't seen anything about it. So again, if anybody out there has any info on that, I'd like to hear about it. Uh, again, DM me. 
Twitter and Instagram, Brent Gleason01. I think I said 01 before, but let's not, it's not a letter O, it's a zero. Brent Gleason01. If you have information on it, I know there's a bunch of chassis guys out there. Let me know. Uh, maybe someday in the near future I'll hit and, <laughs> I'll be in an ACT car, but that's another dream for another day. So, yeah, I can't wait. Let's see what happens. And, yeah, please, please stop. Please stop with the whole debate. I mean, it is childish. I'm sick of hearing it. You're not adding anything to the sport. You're actually kind of taking it away because you're acting like children. Go out and build something better. Go out and create and, and make it faster than the other guy. Then you don't have to worry about whose car is whose. You'll have actual def uh, defined chassis that you can claim as your own. Just be done with it, okay? Lap number four is going to be a sad one. It's going to be our final lap of the week. But it's also the final lap of an industry giant. Uh, a man who we can all honestly credit with saving countless, maybe hundreds or even thousands of racers' lives. A man who, it's hard to put into words his exact contributions to motorsports and motorsports safety. Because he did so much, it's hard to quantify his exact status in racing. Today, I received word, again, December 16th, 2019, I received word that Bill Simpson, founder of Simpson uh, Safety Products, passed away at 79. And if you don't know the story of Bill Simpson, it's actually quite fascinating. And it's, it's a, a man who... At a young age, was a drag racer. I think he was 18 when he was drag racing, and he was injured in a crash where he broke both of his arms. And I think the quote that he mentioned was, he said, until then, I was like most drivers. The only time I thought about safety was after I'd been hurt. This time, I was hurt bad enough to do a lot of thinking. He was a great mind. He... He had a lot of, he, I don't think he had a lot of resources when he first started out, but he had a lot of great ideas. Back in, I would say the 60s, he got together with another drag racer called Mike Sorokin. And I believe Mike Sorokin came from a legendary drag racing group that not a lot of people really know about. I'm pretty sure Mike was part of the surfers. Yeah, he was. They were a group of guys out of California. They, if you don't look, if you don't know who the surfers are, look them up. They did some really cool stuff. They were wacky guys. They were a lot more influential in the sport of drag racing than you might realize. But Bill Simpson got together with Mike, and they they created, I think, the first or one of the most uh, recognizable parachute systems for a race car. I believe they they stuck it on the back of. A Chevy wagon and drove down the street at 100 miles an hour and like they the chute was too big and they crashed the car and I think they got arrested for it but after that Simpson started making drag uh, drag parachutes and eventually he perfected it and I think he sold the first one off to Don Garlitz and after that he started to evolve his business uh, he designed things for NASA he was introduced to uh, a DuPont product called Nomex. It was a fire retardant product, I believe, in the late 60s. And he used it to create the first fire suit. And 
you know, the funny thing is, I forget what year it was, but Simpson is most widely known for taking his suit, putting it on, putting on one of his helmets, because guys were, at the time, they safety wasn't what it is now. It absolutely wasn't. I mean, if you were wearing, like, a corduroy jumpsuit, you were good. Or, like, a, a denim jumpsuit, I mean, you were probably good. But Simpson came up with these fire retardant products, and guys were wary of it. So he said, you know what? I'm going to take this. I'm going to put it on. I'm going to put everything I, I make on. I'm going to set myself right on fire, right on the front stretch of Indianapolis. And he did it. And I think after that, pretty much everybody started wearing his gear. Uh, he ran um, Simpson race products for, God, decades. And the most unfortunate thing about what happened to him happened when Dale Earnhardt passed away in 2001. Simpson Performance Products was involved in the controversy of Earnhardt's death because Earnhardt was wearing, or Earnhardt had Simpson belts in his, Simpson seat belts in his car when he died. And anybody who knows what happened in that incident, Earnhardt's lap belt, I believe on the left side, broke when he impacted the wall and it led to his fatal injuries. NASCAR's initial investigation into the crash blamed the seatbelt's failure, but eventually it was ruled that it was improper installation that led to the failure. But after that point, Simpson's reputation was already destroyed, and unrightfully so. I mean, it was it was very sad how Simpson and his his uh, company was dragged through the dirt for that. I mean, he received death threats for this incident, and I mean, other drivers involved in the incident received death threats. I mean, it was the biggest driver in NASCAR at the time, and maybe even NASCAR history. I mean, Dale Earnhardt was a giant among giants, and. Simpson eventually sued NASCAR for defamation uh, if for $8.5 million in 2003, I believe. But I believe he also withdrew that lawsuit for an undisclosed settlement. And it eventually drove him out of racing or the racing business. He sold uh, Simpson Performance Products in, I think, 2002. But he was right back in it when he, he created the brand Impact Racing, which still exists today. They sold basically everything that Simpson Performance Products sold, but through a different name. And he ran that up until about 2010, when he sold it off to Mastercraft Safety. So, again, Bill Simpson was an innovator. He was a racer. And most importantly, he was probably responsible for saving the lives of countless racers all across the world. And we, as a racing family at large, owe him an immense debt of gratitude. And again, he was just a not only a fantastic ambassador to the sport, but a fantastic innovator and his presence will surely be missed. So that is it for this first episode of the Making Laps podcast. I apologize for the audio quality on this episode because I because I just kind of scrounged around for uh, any microphone I could find. I found a headset and I just said, okay, I'm going to just try to record this. So I, uh, I promise that the audio quality will improve uh, if we can get some listeners behind it. 
and maybe some interest, I will definitely, definitely be improving the, the audio quality. Uh, I am looking for co-hosts or a co-host. Uh, I would like to have a little bit more than just a one-sided discussion. If anybody wants to be a part of a discussion or send in any sort of topics to debate, you can send them to me through Twitter and Instagram uh, direct messages at BrentGleason01. Uh, you can even feel free to give me a follow if you'd like, but that's completely up to you. I hope you enjoy it, and until next time, keep the dirty side down and stay out of the fence.